Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world right now. I'm so honoured and excited about our guest today, Tom Campbell. Tom is a serious explorer of the frontiers of reality, mind consciousness and psychic phenomena. Tom began researching altered states of consciousness with Bob Monroe at the Monroe Laboratories in the early 1970s. He's been experimenting with and exploring the subjective and objective mind ever since. For the past 30 years, Tom has been focused on scientifically exploring the properties, boundaries and abilities of consciousness. Tom Campbell, a professional physicist, has been at the heart of developing US missile defense systems for the past 20 years. Tom is the author of My Big Toe, A Model of Existence and Reality. This is his story and this is his passion. Tom Campbell, so honored you're on the show. Welcome to Passion Harvest. Well, thank you, Louisa, for asking me and inviting me here. It's uh... It's always good to uh, meet another audience. Yes. And well, I mean, you've just done such incredible work. I'd love to dive right in. I've got so many questions and so many topics to talk to you about. Um, For those that potentially don't know who you are, and would you mind just defining what is your theory of consciousness in the concept of this time that we have in a few sentences, if possible? (laughs) (laughs) yes uh, if possible well i'll try to to make it as short as possible louisa um i'm a physicist career physicist worked i'm retired now but worked uh, about 40 years as a professional physicist i'm also a a consciousness researcher i've worked about the same 40 years studying consciousness Mm -hmm. and studying consciousness from the inside mostly, not from the outside. And by that, I mean studying my own consciousness, not other people's consciousness. Um, I was fortunate to run into uh, Mr. Bob Monroe, who I don't know if your listeners have ever heard of, but he wrote three books, Journeys Out of Body, Far Journeys, and Ultimate Journey. And he wrote it like a diary. You know, this is just what happened to me. It wasn't something he tried to do or wanted to do. Matter of fact, he wanted to not do it. It it frightened him. He tried to stop and run away from it. But eventually he just said, well, if it's going to happen, might as well explore it and see what it's all about. And he wrote the book then. It was a diary. So I uh, was fortunate to meet him at a time when he had just built a lab for studying consciousness. And he was looking for somebody to help him with that. So I volunteered. And that was very early in my career as a physicist. I was in my um, mid to late 20s at the time. And he taught me how to explore the larger consciousness system and how to gather evidence to the point that I knew I wasn't just making it up. And it wasn't part of my imagination. So that's where I launched my studies of consciousness from in about uh, Oh, 35 years later, I finally thought I knew enough about it to write a book, which is called My Big Toe. And it's it's not mine because I'm so proud of it. It's mine because if it isn't your experience, then it can't be your truth. So that's the reason the my there. And it's a big toe because in science and physics, we talk about toe, theory of everything. And that in physics is having one overarching understanding of quantum science and also relativity, because those two sort of conflict with each other. They're, they're not entirely compatible, which means there's something else bigger, more fundamental, from which both of them are derived. You know, they're not the final story. So Einstein and others have been trying to find this 
what I call a little toe to unify physics. And uh, what I did was I found that little toe, but I found it as a subset of a bigger toe, which, which is a science of both the objective and the subjective. It's really a model of consciousness. And to make a long story, a short story, the basic idea is that consciousness is what's fundamental. Consciousness is the thing that's, that's real. And everything else is created by information. We live in an information-based reality. And that can be said, you know, in other words, it's a, it's a simulation or in other words, a virtual reality. But a virtual reality, unlike other people's concept of virtual reality, this is one where consciousness is the computer. Consciousness is the bottom substrate of reality in which everything else springs. So that's the basic idea that we are consciousness. And these bodies that we're, that we are uh, playing with here, you know, you, Louisa, me, Tom Campbell, these bodies are avatars. And we're not the body, we're a consciousness making all the choices for this body. Just like any other virtual reality, you know, if you play a virtual reality game, you make all the choices for your player. Well, here we are. Uh, this is a total immersive game. So we're in it from the beginning. And that makes us believe that we are our avatar, but we're not. We're consciousness. So that's kind of the, the idea. Now, with this idea, I mean, that just sounds like a crazy idea. It but doesn't. With this idea, but with this idea, you can derive physics, a better physics, a more general physics. You can understand quantum physics. Why should particles be probability distributions? Why the speed of light should be a constant? Those are two big questions in physics that are not answered now by traditional physics. And this perspective of seeing us as consciousness uh, helps you derive uh, a much more general physics. It also lets you understand the subjective world, so you can understand things like happiness and satisfaction and struggle and pain. And why do I feel the way I feel? You know, how do you find happiness and satisfaction and joy and peace in your life, particularly when your life is in the middle of a world that's so full of greed and dysfunction and, and negativity? How do you find that, that peace? And what is it all about? What is our purpose here? You know, why am I here? What's the point? You're what you're answering already. You're yeah. answering all my questions already. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kind of pointing to the question. So that's what I'm about. It's a it's a theory of everything based on consciousness. Um, it does derive physics. I have some quantum mechanics experiments ongoing now at a at a, at a Pomona. Um, uh, what's it called? Um, I'm trying to think of the way they call it. I think they call it uh, Polytech at Pomona, California Polytech dash Pomona instead of Pomona Polytech. I think that I got it right. But anyway, I've got a couple of uh, uh, experiments going on there. I have a paper that described those experiments that's um, been published in a peer-reviewed quantum mechanics journal. So this is real science. It's not just pretend science. It's, it's real science. And, uh, but as I started with, it's not your truth until it becomes your experience. So with that little intro, take it away, Louisa. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I'm going to backtrack because it, you know, you've opened it up to so many questions. I'm going to go mm -hmm. back to your incredible experiences with Bob Munro. And I just love how, you talk about, you know, it, it all came from you, all your experiences. But I have to ask, how did you spoke about Bob Monroe taught you how to realize you're not making it up, which I think mm -hmm. is a very big question for many people who have certain mm -hmm. experiences, metaphysical experiences or mystical experiences. How do they know they're not making it up? Well, the way that you know that is by doing things that are evidential. There's a lot of things that are evidential, like remote viewing is evidential. Mm -hmm. 
if you're giving a you know a remote viewing target or you you know go to the remote viewing sites there's, there's a lot of them on on uh, the web now free where you go to the site and the site has like a hundred thousand pictures and each picture is associated with a number and the site gives you a number and you're supposed to remote view the picture and of course then you type in your number and you get to see the picture so immediately you get the truth data how well did you describe the picture how well did you get its you know basic components and what was in it its colors its feeling its mood uh, how how good a remote viewer are you so that's evidence and if you can do that and say 80 90% you get it right then you know it's not just good luck because for you to to very closely describe a picture that's one of 100,000 and actually get it right, well, there's no way to, to say, well, it's just lucky guess. You know, that's not lucky yeah. guessing. That's obviously you're getting information in a, in a way that is not normal. So they call that paranormal. So you do those things. Let's see, we did that. We did uh, uh, things like looking at uh, the headline that would be on the local newspaper um, you know, next week, that sort of thing to see if we could see if we could see, you know, what was happening in the near future. We would go back and find things in history and look and see if we could come up with details that then we could go see if those details were correct. You know, so you check them out. So there's lots of things you can do. We practice using our minds to heal other people. And in that case, you have to do it a lot in order to get good statistics. Because if you work on somebody and they get better, well, they may have just gotten better anyway. You know, right. It may not have been that you did anything. They may have just gotten better. But if you do that, you know, 100 times or 500 times, now you can look at the statistics and see whether they just got better anyway, which, you know, is unlikely if it's a chronic, some, you know, a chronic disease that they've had for two decades, and then it, you know, goes away. Uh, then you can get some pretty strong evidence. So when myself and Dennis Menerick, an electrical engineer, and I were both coming out to the lab, going out to the lab together, and we probably spent the first year or so doing nothing but collecting evidence because both of us were very skeptical. Engineers and scientists tend to be very skeptical about things like this. And, you know, in our mind, it's like, well, if this turns out to be a lot of hocus pocus, then we're at, we're going to, you know, we're out of here. But if it doesn't, then wow, what an opportunity to learn. So that was our way we came into the relationship with Bob. And it didn't take us very long, probably a year, maybe a year and a half before we had enough evidence of our own to kind of answer that question, you know, are we making it up? Well, you can't make up that picture, you know, that you're looking at that's one of 100,000 pictures, you know, I mean, you can't do that. So once you've done these things hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, you stop asking the question, is it real? Because you know, it's real. <laughs> you've done it. You, you amazed you yourself. Yeah. And it's, that's true. You amaze yourself. And in the beginning, it's like, wow, I can't believe that worked, you know, and by the two or three hundredth time, it's like, yeah, that works. And now how can I get better at it? How can I optimize it? How can I make it so it works, you know, more reliably? How can I understand it? What's the theory? What's going on? Why does it work like that? And what are the limitations? And, you know, why is it sometimes it doesn't seem to work? You know, what's going on there? So I had a lot of questions as a scientist that I wanted to answer about it to understand it. And that was really my, my job. That's kind of the job Bob gave to me. I'm the physicist. We model reality. Hey, Tom, what's going on? So like I say, 35 years later, you know, I, I wrote the book, which was, I figured it out. It's not an easy thing to figure what's going on. It's very, like most science, it's very tedious science. You have to make, you have to go, let's say, into the non-physical, into consciousness. You have to do something that uh, has an effect let's say you're remote viewing. So you remote view and you do it a certain way and then you change a variable, do it differently and see how that affects your ability and do it again, do it again. You know, so these, in order to understand what affects what and what's, you know, what's 
causal, you know, what, what's causing what and what are limitations literally takes thousands and thousands of repetitions over lots of years in order to isolate what variables are doing what and why. So that's why 35 years of work, it wasn't because I was lazy and didn't work hard. It just takes that long to, right. you know, to work through these things because they're, to me, they were all unknowns. And if you're in an unknown place, you know, it's like, where do you start? You know, you just start wherever you happen to be. And then you just very slowly kind of build your map and build your understanding. And it's almost like this trial and error to improve the accuracy of your desire. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. You talk about individual units of consciousness. We are individual mm -hmm. units of consciousness. Are our thoughts our own, though? Yes, our thoughts are our own. And we do have free will. But free will is not... It does not mean that you get to do whatever you want. That's not free will. That's maybe having a genie with unlimited wishes. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's not free will. Free will means that in any particular situation, you have choices. And you get to make which choice you, know, you choose to actualize. That's free will. And it's not even a selection of all the choices you have, because typically you only know of a few choices, even though there's much more that outside of your knowledge that you have. So it's only the knowledge, only the choices that you know about that you can list. You have free will to choose among those. Okay, so you have that as free will and your consciousness, you make the choices, but there's lots of influences when you say, are they all our own thoughts? Well, yes. all sorts of people would like to influence our thinking and what we think, how we think, the way we see the world, uh, you know, advertisers are constantly trying to get us to see their products as better than their competitors' products. And they have lots of psychological tricks that they can play on us, you know, with color and with mood and, you know, with, uh, with characters and skits and so on that they can play on us. Uh, so we have lots of influences on us. But when it gets right down to it, our choice is our choice. And if we choose to buy that product because there was a you know, sexy model uh, holding it uh, in front of the camera or because the colors appealed to us, it's still our choice. So yes, we, we make our choices and we have responsibility for them. And our choices are more than just, do I take this road or that road? Our choices affect everything. Like if somebody insults you, you have a choice. You can, how do you deal with that? How do you react to it? Do you get angry? Do you get even? Do you, you know, get physical? Do you get, uh, you know, do you say something even, you know, smarter back? You know, how do you do? Or do you smile? Or do you, you know, how do you approach that? Do you approach it with openness, with kindness, you know, looking for understanding? Do you try to see where that other person's coming from? Or do you just get angry? Well, these are choices that we have. So when we say, oh, George makes me angry. Well, that's not true. You choose to be angry. George is just the, the thing that uh, opens up that choice for you. You don't have to be angry. That's your choice. So yes, we have responsibility and we have free will. And I guess one of the greatest freedoms we have is how to choose how, how, we, how we feel in any situation. Exactly. How do we... You know, how do we react? What do we think about things? How do we interpret the data? Every one of us lives in our own reality. There's not one reality that we all share. We all create our own reality by the way we interpret the information that we get. Now, if we just look at the physical world, that information we get is what we get through our, through our five senses. Well, you know, what we hear, what we see, what we smell, what we taste, you know, mm -hmm. what we feel. We get that information and we interpret that data to be our reality. But how we interpret that data has a lot to do with us. It's not that that's an objective interpretation. We interpret that data based on our past experience, on our knowledge, based on our fears, 
you know, based on uh, our ignorance. And that means that everybody lives in their own reality because everybody has their own interpretation. You know, what do we think that metaphor means? Well, does it mean exactly the same to us as it did to the person who said it? Probably not. What do we think the color blue means? Does it mean exactly the same thing to us as, you know, as the person who's pointing to this thing and calling it blue? Probably not, because we're all different. Even our, our physiology is different. Our, our sensors for getting the data, our sense data, you know, are all a little different. So we don't, we don't share a reality. Like all virtual realities, we receive data from the computer. That's from consciousness. We interpret it, and our interpretation is our reality. Because it's a multiplayer game, then a lot of the thing, things we interpret are similar, but not exactly the same. So we all agree that, you know, I'm wearing a blue shirt and you're wearing purple and white, you know, and my hair's white and your hair's very dark. You know, we, we can agree on things like that, but once we get to the details, well, we don't use the same words. We don't necessarily, you know, see it the same way. And so, our consciousness creates our reality. Can we recreate mm -hmm. our reality based on our thoughts and our emotions and our perceptions? We can indeed. So we actually help create the reality that we live in. You know, we're co-creators of this reality. And we do that in three basic ways. And one we just discussed by how we interpret the data that helps, you know, that creates a reality. Another thing we, we can do is we can use our intent to modify future probability. Now, that's a big concept. but It's a good concept. Yeah, but there is this, I call it a database of future probability, which is all the things that could possibly happen and the probability that they will happen. Mm -hmm. And as we get closer and closer to the present moment, then those probabilities are changing all the time. They change all the time. So something that is you know, very probable right now may not be so probable tomorrow mm -hmm. or the next day. They all change. And they change for many reasons. But one, they change because of what we do, because of the experiences that we have, the way we think. And our intention can modify those probabilities. That's how the healing works. That's how you're able to heal someone with your mind. You just have an intention that, that whatever's wrong with them goes away. You know, that those cells, you know, that if they're maybe malignant, you know, that they disappear, that they go away. And that raises the probability that they might. So when that biopsy comes a week later, and that's, we'll call that the measurement, when the measurement's made, the way measurements are made is that a, a ran, the system takes a random draw from a probability distribution of the possibilities. And that's, if that comes back malignant, then ah, it's malignant. If that random draw comes back, you know, benign, then it's benign. And you can use your intent to make the probability that it's benign larger and the probability that it's malignant smaller. So that's how uh, the, the uh, placebo effect works. You know, doctors give somebody a sugar pill and say, ah, this is a wonderful new medicine and it's going to cure you. And it actually does help people. It cures people. And it's not just that the people think they're cured, but it really does cure people. The placebo effect is a, you know, is a real thing, it changes health. So what we think affects our health. If we worry, let's say we're very worried and we're very negative and we always think the worst and we've got that little lump that uh, we don't know what it is, but we're going to have that biopsy next week. And if we're really so worried about it, we think, oh, no, I bet that's cancer. Uh oh, what am I going to do? Oh, I hope it isn't. And if that takes all of our thoughts for that week, then all of that negative thinking tends to raise the probability that it's malignant and lowers the probability that it's benign. So you see, just our, our worrying, we tend to create what we fear. What we That's think a, about. 
Yeah, what we think about. What, what we, we focus put, on. Yeah, we talk about putting energy into things, you know. Well, it works all kinds of things. You know, you can you can put energy onto next weekend not being rainy so you can have your picnic with your family. And you can modify that probability or you can put your focus on your intent on uh, getting a parking space when you arrive at that downtown destination of yours where parking is so difficult. And with that intention, you can change the probability of what happens. So that's another way we share in the creation of our reality. And the last way is just by our, our behavior, who we are. If we tend to be a user of people, you know, like, you know, well, what can you do for me? Mm -hmm. You know, what's in it for me kind of an attitude. And then people won't like us, you know, because we're not very nice. And people will stay away from us and um, uh, won't be very friendly, won't be sociable, won't invite us to their parties because we're just not nice to be around. And if we are very positive rather than very negative with people and we're very giving, then just the opposite happens. Everybody likes us. People want to be around us. So we change our reality through our own behavior and through how other people interact with us. But... You see, we don't get everything we want because all we can do is modify probability. We can't make it come out the way we want. It's not like we are forcing reality to our, you know, to our will. All we're doing is modifying the probabilities. And if those probabilities are really, really large, like there's a, a you know, a thousand to one that this is going to happen. Well, if you work real hard, you might get it down to a hundred to one, but it's still not likely to happen. You see. So you're limited in what you can do, and sometimes you're able to, to uh, modify reality and sometimes not. But these are some of the things that we did in our uh, work with Bob, you know, practicing that. How successful can you be at modifying various things in reality and, and seeing whether they, you know, they come out that way? It's, or not? It's, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. You, number two, that you talk about the intention or the intent to... Mm -hmm. increase the probability people often talk about you have to really believe it or think with your heart how did you find from your trial and error number two the the intention behind it how was the best way to achieve that okay. well, desired outcome yeah the intention can be very weak or it can be very strong and the, the question really is how, how do you have a strong intent what change what you know how do you not have a, a weak intent? Well, if you make it with your intellect, then it's very weak. I would just call that making a wish, you know, throwing a penny in the wishing well and say, oh, I wish this would happen. Well, that almost never is very powerful. That doesn't move probability very much. It's casual, doesn't have a lot of oomph, you know, doesn't have a lot of energy in it. It's not particularly serious. It's intellectual. It has it, to be powerful. It has to be made at what I call the being level, or perhaps the intuitive level, not at the intellectual level. It can't be something that you just are wishing for. You have to, one, have focus. You have to be able to focus on precisely what you want. Okay? Now, that sounds easy, but it's not as easy as it sounds for most people. Because most people's minds are not all that focused. Most people's minds have thoughts flying around in them and flying through them all the time. In any, you know, in any 10 seconds, you'll have three or four thoughts zipping through your mind. Some of them grab your attention. Some of them don't. They're just things going on. Well, you need to settle down all that noise. I call that noise. That's a noisy mind. And the, the average or typical mind is a very noisy mind. And that noise makes it a weaker intention. So how do we get rid of the noise? Well, we learn to meditate. That's where meditation comes in. Meditation is just a practice in getting rid of the unintentional noise. So what's left is your intentional, you know, your intention that has a very sharp and clear focus with no noise. So some of it you have to practice. The next thing, it has to be clear. Your intention has to be a very clear intention. That's not as easy as it sounds either, because most times our intentions, our intentions are very broad. 
oh, I want you to get better. Right. Well, you know, get better can mean all kinds of things. You know, it can mean all sorts of things. So it's a very, we, we think in broad brushes and broad strokes. We don't generally think real logically and real precisely. And you have more power if you can think logically and very precisely. And if you can get low noise, you see, now the last thing, and probably the thing that makes the most, uh, the most difference is you have to really care. You have to do it, as you mentioned, from the heart, you know, from the soul, from, you know, deep inside of you. If you're healing somebody, you can go through all the, all the motions and still not be very successful unless you really do care about that person and about their health. And not only do you care, but you care a lot. You see, their, their health and the, is important to you. If they're just, oh, yeah, subject number 56, eh, okay, I'll go through the motions. Well, you won't be very good at it. But if you really care about that person and their health, why? No, you've never met them before. They are person number 56, but you have a sense of them and you care about them because you care about, well, most everybody and they're important and you understand that and you connect with them, then you can be more powerful in how you modify the future probability. So it has to do with focus, with clarity. It has to do with a personal connection, a personal um, I don't know, uh, a personal caring, I guess, about what it is that you're, that you're doing. And if what you're really caring about is impressing people with all the wonderful skills you have of remote viewing and, and healing people, then all of that's just ego stuff. And you will get better for a while, but you will never get very good because it's the ego and the fear is what really gets in the way. That's the stuff that is the problem. It's the ego and the fear that are in charge of all that noise in your mind. You have a, if you have a lot of ego and fear, then you probably have a very noisy mind. So it all works together. So it's the, you know, if, I, if somebody wanted to know, well, how could I learn how to do that? I'd tell them the very first thing to do is to understand your fear, understand your ego, and try to get rid of that because that's like ground zero, step one to get that under control, because then that'll make everything else so much easier. Now, if you have fear and ego, and you want to do it anyway, well, you can kind of bull your way through that. You can get the ego to stand down for a while, you can get the fear to back off for a while, but you'll be limited into what you're able to do. But you can push through it and still get some progress and still, you know, learn a lot. So it's not like you shouldn't try until you feel like you're closer to being perfect. Well, if that's the case, almost nobody would ever try. And that's not good. You need, you need to go, go try and do things. But understand that growing, what I call just growing up, you know, uh, increasing the quality of your consciousness, uh, becoming love, caring, making it about other, not about self. These are the things at the very bottom of your intentions that make a difference that make a, so an intent, a strong intent rather than a weak intent. Right. I mean, that's what it's all about, but I have to ask you the fear in the ego while we all have elements of those wise few so prevalent within our consciousness or with, I wouldn't say within our, with our individual units. Yeah, well, well, what is fear and why do we, is fear something we learn? No fear. Well, we can learn to be more fearful. Yes. Matter of fact, Fear, any fear tends to create more fear. That's the thing about fear. You know, the more you have, the easier it is to get more. Yeah. Uh, it, it, fears kind of build on each other and you can become such a fearful person that you're afraid of all kinds of things. And that usually is a kind of a downward spiral that happens over years. So yes, fear creates more fear, but also it works in the opposite direction. Getting rid of a fear it's really hard the first time or two, but after that, getting rid of the next fear is easier. And the one after that's even easier yet. So, you know, you also have an upward spiral that you can get into that, that works. But what about this fear? Why are we so fearful? Well, we are individuated units of consciousness 
And what we're here to do is lower our entropy. Entropy is a physics word that has to do with order and disorder, but let me put it in different terms that are uh, probably a, a little more useful to your audience. We're here to become love. We're here to care. We're here to learn how to cooperate. We're here to learn how to make our life and our intentions about other rather than about self. That's how you evolve the quality of your consciousness by becoming love, by caring. So that's the point. And I could go through probably a half an hour talk about how that is logical. That actually makes sense. I can make a very, a very scientific logical case for that, but let's just say that that's the way it is. Yep. Okay, so here we are, individuated units of consciousness, and our job is to grow up, become love, and not be fearful. But we're just, we start at, let's say, just a blank. We don't have any particular caring or cooperation, or we don't particularly have any fear. We don't, we're just potential. So when we are new, when consciousness is first evolving, it's just potential. And the way consciousness evolves is by making choices within experience. So we have experiences. Those experiences are the context for our choices. And if we make choices that are based on what about me, you know, me first, um, how can I use you sort of thing, then we de-evolve. If we make choices of how can I help, you know, how can I be of service? What can I do for you? Then we evolve. So if we want to cooperate, then we're evolving. If we're not cooperating, but it's rather all about us, then we're de-evolving. So we start neutral without really, with lots and lots of potential, but nothing really actualized yet. And then we get put in a into a virtual reality, like this virtual reality, where there's lots of hard choices. You know, you can imagine. Yeah, Homo sapiens 200,000 years ago, uh, at the beginning, it was a pretty tough life. You know, things were not easy. Survival was not an easy thing to, you know, to uh, have. Uh, there were all kinds of things that would that would do you in. All sorts of problems, just finding a Shelter and food was, you know, was almost a full-time job. So at that point, we individuate units of consciousness log on to these human avatars and start making their choices. Well, a lot of those choices tended to be fear-based because they were was, very real fear-based. They were, choices. yeah. It was a scary place to be, right? There was a lot of, you know, it was it was a hard place. So in that case, they were made fearfully. So that's kind of where we started. That's how we had to grow up. And you might think, well, but well, couldn't we have started in a more gentle place? You know, couldn't we have kind of started in Candyland or someplace, uh, yeah. you know, light and fluffy and nice where there wasn't anything? Well, the trouble with that is, is that those choices don't really have very serious consequences. That's where we all were before we decided to log on to human avatars. We were just interacting with other individuated units of consciousness. You know, imagine a big chat room with thousands and thousands of people in the chat room, very few rules, and that's it. That's your experience base. Well, there's not many choices that have any consequences. You know, you can lie, you can tell the truth, you can you can make things up, you can do whatever, you know, you can be friendly, you can not, and there's really no consequences. So the choices didn't mean much, and the consciousness didn't grow up much. It didn't evolve much, because the choices weren't very serious. They weren't... The opportunities weren't there. Yeah, the opportunities weren't there. Very few consequences of any, any merit. So that's why the conscious system had to create this virtual reality. And it didn't program the reality, it just started with initial conditions and a rule set and let it evolve. And then when it evolved to the point that there were things like homo sapiens, then IUOCs, individual units of consciousness, started logging on and playing them. And when they did, there were lots of consequences, you know, life and death consequences, love and caring consequences, 
And there was a lot of love and caring, and there was a lot of you know scary things too. But people evolved, people grew, and they actualized their potential and began to evolve much more quickly than they did just in the big chat room. Because now they had real choices with real consequences. See, so you needed those choices with very serious consequences, very serious moral, you know, physical consequences, or the learning really didn't take place. So we needed that kind of a virtual reality. But what it meant is that when we got those tough choices, often we made negative, you know, we went to the negative side, we went to the dark side rather than rather than saying, all right, there's some other people. Let's see how we can help them. How can we all work together? We said, oh, there's some people. Look, they got some stuff we don't have. Let's take it away from them. So those were different choices that we had. Let's beat them up, take their stuff, and then we'll have it. Then we'll be better able to survive because we'll have their food and their weapons and whatever else, they their cave or whatever else they had. And many people are still making those choices. Yes, exactly. Many people are still making those choices. But that's our job now is to grow out of that. You know, and we've had in our in our social arrangements, you know, in our governments, our, our cities, our, our collective uh, um, experiments in civilization, we've had this basic warlord mentality from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, control, power, force, that's what wins. And anything else gets run over. And it's only been in the last, I don't know, thousand years or so, and mostly even the last just three or 400, that that's changed significantly. You know, you go back even 500 years and you'll find pretty much we're still control power force. You know, there was very little else going on. And we are growing up though. It's a slow process because you have to change yourself. You have to, you know, you have to become more than you were. And you have to do that. I call it pulling yourself up with your bootstraps, but it's it's yeah. it's changing yourself a little bit at a time just by being different, choosing to be different. So that's why we're here, and we are making progress. This is a much kinder, kinder, and a much more gentle space that we're in now. Even with all the ugly stuff going on, it's still a lot better than it was, you know, a few hundred years ago. So we are evolving and there's a good opportunity that in the next oh, i don't know you know the next century the next couple of decades that we could take some big steps we have opportunities now for growing up that uh, didn't exist ever before and you know it, for the humans for the human uh, race so what we do with those opportunities uh, we don't know yet you know we could make wrong choices or we could make right choices but at least the opportunity for faster Growth, taking big steps rather than just baby steps, is uh, right here now. You know, and, and now, in the next two or three decades, could make a big difference in our consciousness evolution and the quality of our consciousness. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful wonderful perspective. And I just have to ask you, since we were talking about fear, how it it is a, a block in a certain way. If someone wants to overcome a particular fear, whatever it might be, what is your advice? Well, the first thing, the first step is to, I I hate to use the word accept because sometimes people think accept means it's okay, I accept it. But another word probably should be own it. You have to own your fear. You have to realize you have it. You have to look inside yourself and look at your motivations why you do the things you do, why you make the choices you make, why you feel the way you feel, why your life is the way it is. You know, if your life is full of struggle and full of pain and relationships are always problematic and so on, well, you'll have to look at that and say, why? And it's not something that you can blame on others. You have to take responsibility. You are who you are because of all the choices you've made. You are the summation of all the choices you've ever made. That's who you are. So if you if you look at yourself and you say, oh, yeah, I see fears. I recognize that I have these fears. I feel 
inadequate. I feel, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel secure. You know, I'm insecure. I don't feel like I'm really being all that I should be. I feel like I'm not doing what I need to be doing. I feel, and you have these things, well, these are all fears. Or I feel that, uh, you know, I'm not really all that lovable, or I feel like I'll never find a good relationship. And, you know, so we have lots and lots of fears. It's not just fears of grizzly bears and poisonous snakes, you know, it's fears of who we are and how yes. we are. That's the fears I'm talking about. Yeah. It's, it's the fears, it's the fearful things that come up when we think about ourselves, when we visit ourselves, when we go into that meditation state and kind of learn who we are. That's another good point about meditation. That's the place where you get to meet and learn about your own consciousness. And when you do that, uh, sometimes you find things that aren't so pretty in there. And mostly these are fears. And then there's the ego. The ego wants to whitewash the fears so that the intellect doesn't have to deal with them. So the ego is the thing that tells you, oh, that's all right. That's not really you. That, that's George's fault. You know, you're not, you know, you're not responsible for that. Anybody would be angry. You're okay. Rather than saying no, anger is not an appropriate response. I need to outgrow that anger. So first is to be aware that you need to outgrow the anger and you can't just, you know, blame it on somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I call that owning it or Another word is becoming authentic, really knowing who you are, being authentic. Now, being authentic is just the first step, because once you're authentic, that means at the being level, not at the intellectual level. Intellectual level will come out who you would like to be, who you think you are. You know, that's your image of yourself. That's not really who you are. Who you are is something different than that. It has to be in at the being level, the intuitive level. And once you become authentic, you're aware of the fears you have, of your dysfunction, of the problems you have. You're aware of these issues, as well as you're aware of the beauty and the potential and the good stuff that's in there. You're just aware of you. This is me. Mm -hmm. And then you say, that's okay. That's where I am. That's where all of my choices have taken me. Is it's taken me right to here. Now, let me see how me works in the outside world. And you have to be aware of how do you affect other people? How do you interpret reality? How do you interpret things? Do you see everything as being personal? It's all about you. Oh, somebody made a wisecrack. Hey, it must be about me. They're, they're, you know, and, right. you know, or do you see things differently? You know, what are your perspectives? So once you become authentic, you have to look at that authentic you and how that authentic you interacts with other people and the world and how it grows and the choices it makes, and then decide, is that the way I want to be? Do I want to be this person that I am? Or do I want to be differently? And what do I want to be that's different? And how do I want to be different? And if you say, well, I'd rather be not insecure, but secure, confident, know who I am, feel good about who I am and what I'm learning. All right, well, now there's a couple of ways you can go there. One is to look at those fears and see where they came from. That's one. You don't have to do that, but that's just one path. Mm -hmm. And meditation can help there. You can go to where you first got those fears back in this See, this future probable database becomes a past database once it passes through the present. So you have all this past data that's available, too, for you to look at, to see about where that fear came from. How did you get that? And typically, almost always, you'll find that the fears are just smoke. They're paper tigers. They just look like tigers. But when you get there, you find it was just some trivial thing that you as a five-year-old just took the wrong way and you've had that problem ever since. So most of our fears come out of childhood, come out of events that uh, were very big to us emotionally and changed us, but to everybody else, they were trivial events that didn't mean anything, you see. And, and we hold on to them. We hold on to them. Yes, I, I hear all kinds of stories of people who have successfully gone back and found their fears. And, you know, there are things like, 
Well, you know, when I was six, mom came home with, uh, you know, a teddy bear for my younger sister and a teddy bear for my younger brother, but nothing for me. And I knew that it was because I wasn't good enough. You know, I didn't matter as much. I wasn't as worthy. And from then on, they felt not worthy, not good enough. Yeah. And then when they find that out, they look at it and they realize, oh, well, you know, I'm three years older, you know, than my next sibling. And mom just thought maybe I was past the teddy bear, you know, stage that the two younger ones, you know, was more appropriate or some other reason and realized that it wasn't that mom thought that I was inadequate at all, but I felt inadequate, particularly if two or three things like that happen. Well, on top of the teddy bears and you have something exciting, you want to tell mom and dad and they say, shh not now we're busy you see and they don't have time for you and then it's like oh yeah yeah i'm really not too special here i'm i'm not too adequate or they'd have time for me and if you get several of those things in a row then you start to it starts to undermine your your you know what you think of yourself and now you know you can be 50 years old and you're still walking around making choices based on that that emotion and yeah, based on those feelings. So the the fears we have are almost always just paper tigers. They're not real tigers, but we feel them as though they're very real. They're very scary and they're very hard to deal with. And it's very hard to get past them because they are so frightening because we don't know. And see, that's another fear, the fear of not knowing, the fear of it's really a fear of the unknown. It's a fear of uncertainty. If we don't know, well, if I'm, if I change, then it's going to change my relationships. It's going to change everything. And what might I be? If I'm authentic, you know, what might happen? How might my life change? And I don't know. I want to go there. That's too uncertain. So people need certainty. They're afraid of uncertainty. They're afraid of death. And a lot of that has to do with uncertainty. They don't know what that means. Yeah. Yeah. They have their, their fear of being wrong. They have a fear of, of not being good enough, of doing it wrong, of not raising their kids right, of not, you know, being all they should be at work and on and on and on to where we have these fears that, that manipulate us. These fears are the things that are making those choices for us. We choose the things we choose because of our fear. And that generally makes our life one of struggle. It makes our life one of, well, we keep trying, we keep trying, but nothing really seems to work out. And when it really does seem like it's working out, uh, it falls apart after a while. Or when you get past that, that hurdle that you know, if you just got past that hurdle, everything would be great. And then there's another hurdle. And life just seems to be this series of disappointments and hurdles and difficulties. It's just a struggle, 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 pain, struggle, upset, disappointment. And that is telling you that you're not making good choices, that your choices are fear-based, because that's where fear-based choices take you. When your choices are love-based, they take you to the opposite space. They take you to a space of satisfaction and joy. And life is fun, even in a world that's full of nastiness like ours is. It's still fun. And it's still very positive. Life is just good. Relationships are good. So that's, you know, you don't choose to be angry, even if somebody insults you. You know, anger, it just doesn't come to you as something you want to do, because that's dysfunctional. That just makes it worse. So you do something functional. You know, you do something that actually makes it better instead of worse. So your life, rather than leading a, you know, a, a, lang- a angry life, you lead a joyful life and a positive life. So one, how do you know that you have problems with fear and ego? Well, ask yourself, do I live in a, you know, is my life peace, joy, and satisfaction? Or is my life struggle, pain, and, and uh, you know, misery? Yeah. Well, if it's most people, it's more struggle than it is joy. You know, I mean, everybody has some joy. Everybody has some pain. It's, it's not, we're not looking for hundred percent here on either category, but what is it most of the time for most people, most of the time it's struggle. 
that's their life is struggle. And that means you have, you have fear. So find that fear. Next time you feel something negative, next time you have a negative emotion, say, why do I have that negative emotion? I mean, really, why? I'm not going to blame it on George, but why do I have that negative emotion? Why do I feel like I should get angry or I need to get angry? And you'll find, well, that's because George just said something that was that made me feel bad about myself, made me feel unappreciated, made me feel not, not good. And not only in my eyes, but maybe in the eyes of others. And that, you know, that upsets me because I have fears that other people don't appreciate me. And they do see me as not being as good as I should be. And this will just add to that dysfunction that I know is there anyway. And, you know, pretty soon you, the anger comes out. Because yeah. you you retaliate, you push back, you get angry. If you don't have those fears, then it's, oh, gee, I wonder why that person insulted me. Hmm. They're probably not having a good day. <laughs> I bet they're feeling really miserable about something. They're probably upset about something, and they probably misunderstand something about what I'm doing or my intention. So after they settle down and get over that, maybe I'll go talk to them and see if I can help. See if I can't help them. You know, can't see what it is that that uh, what's the burr under their saddle there, and maybe I can help them see it. And if I try that and it doesn't work, well, then I just don't really spend a lot of time with that person, perhaps because they're just a very negative person. And I still work with them. I'm still polite. I still, you know, help them out when I can. I'm still very nice to them, but. I just don't spend any more time around them than I want to. And then you'll find out eventually that although that person dislikes everybody else in the office, they really like you. <laughs> and that's because you're the one person that doesn't, you know, react. throw negativity back at them, yeah. doesn't react. So pretty soon you're their favorite person. So then you really can help them. They will listen to you. And you are able to be useful in that way. And everybody else still really likes you too, because you're a positive person. And everybody likes positive people, because they're nice to be around. Nobody likes complainers and people who are always <laughs> negative. You know? They're just not fun to be around. You know, it's always, oh, whoa, oh, I did this and this happened to me. And now I have this and you can't believe what, you know, and it's just on and on and on. Well, after the about cycle, 10, isn't it? Yeah, after about 10 minutes of that, you're, you know, you just don't want to be with them anymore because it's negative. Well, the same thing happens in the opposite when you're positive. People just want to hang out with you and they want to be around you and they value your opinion because, gee, you seem to always be so up and happy. Maybe they should hang out with you and find out how you do that. Right. You know, get into a happy space. So, yes, indeed. So how do we get rid of that fear? Now that we know that we have it and we're authentic, we see it, we say, well, I don't really want to be that way. I recognize I am that way, then one approach, like I say, is to go see if you can't find how you got that way. Mm -hmm. And often that'll just clear it up. You'll see it and you'll realize, oh, I'm really not, you know, inadequate. I just didn't get a teddy bear when I was six years old and I've been feeling bad ever since. Or my family was very busy then and didn't have time for me. You know, they had to take time for my younger siblings because the younger siblings needed more time. I was older, didn't need so much time. So I kind of got shunted off to the side because I could take care of myself better. And I understand that now, particularly if you're a parent and you're doing some of the same things to your children, you know, yeah. and then you realize that, oh, I need to be aware of my children's feelings. I need to be very more aware of what these small things might mean to them. So that's one thing you can do. The next thing is to catch yourself whenever you feel negative. Just catch it. Oh, I'm feeling angry. Somebody just insulted me and I want to rip their throat out, you know, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to take a deep breath. I'm going to pause. I'm going to change the subject. I'm just going to get through this moment. And eventually, if you keep trying to not be angry, you'll find it gets easier and easier and easier not to be angry. And pretty soon the anger has gone and you don't get angry anymore so much. And that's one way to work on it. It's just by catching it and not wanting to be it. But I'll make a point here. It's not about not acting angry. It's about not being angry. And there's a huge difference. 
We yes. don't want to become better actors. We want to come become better people. You see, so it's not about somebody insulted me and I'll just smile at them and grin and not get angry. That's, and think about it for the next week. Yeah, and you'll think about <laughs> it and grind your teeth, you know, all the time. That's not it. That's not changing who you are. That's just changing your behavior. And behavioral changes might be more civilizing, but they don't help you grow up any. They don't help you evolve your quality. You have to change who you are, which is why it, this evolution of consciousness is so slow. If all you had to do is change your mind, change your behavior, well, we could all act like saints, you know, before long, but we wouldn't be saints. We'd still be those same fearful people that we always were. We just, we just are acting better. Like I say, that's civilizing, but it's not helpful as far as growing up goes. You have to actually change who you are, and that's why it's so slow. So that's the second way. And the other way is if the last way is if you just keep an intention on not being that way, just a strong intention. I don't want to be that way. And if that is a thought that's in your mind, an intention that you hold in your mind all the time, after a while, you just won't be that way because intent modifies future probability and you will just not be that way. You will do and you will have, you will come up with all just the perfect strategies for you for getting rid of those fears. They will just happen naturally. You won't have to go find them or figure them out. They'll happen as a result of that intention. Such wise words, Tom Campbell. Thank you so much. I can't wait to re-listen <laughs> to this show. Can I, I just got, got two more quick questions. Well, they're not oh. quick, but we talk about probabilities and future. What, what, is, what is time? What's your concept of time? Is there a past, a present and a future? That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.